Hello, my name is Tommy Small and I'm the artistic director of the dance company called Shaper Caper based in Dundee and yeah, dead excited because actually we've got a new home now which is dead lovely. So we're now based at Manhattan Works alongside Showcases Street and Street League and lots of other amazing people. So pop in and see us sometime. We've got a gorgeous yellow and grey um, home. So yeah, come on in. We've also got lots of like really nice wee treats and snacks. So yeah, come along and see them. So we, I'm here today with Alex McCrossin, who is a wonderful performer and dance artist with Shaper Caper. Alex works with us full time across many of our projects that we do. So from everything from teaching on our Well Good project that we do, performing in many roles, including, get ready for it, Nicotine Menage, thank you very much, and also Tariana Grande, Hello, as part of our NHS Tayside project. Well, good. That's all about, um, as I'm sure you've probably guessed by now, smoking cessation and awareness around smoking. Also, Alex also performs in our production, The Unwanted, that has been touring across Scotland recently and performed in the opening of the V&A and lots of other wonderful stuff with Shaper Caper. So, hello, Alex. How are you doing? Hello. I'm all right. I'm all right, Thomas. How are you feeling today? I'm good. I've just went and bought loads of number seven beauty products, so I feel like I am like slick. I'm like I'm scared to like put my hand on anything because I think I'm just I'm so like lubricated up. <laughs> I think I'm just gonna like slide off my chair in a minute, but all these wrinkles are gonna be disappearing fast. So very excited. But no, I'm good. So we're here in residence in Aberdeen at City Moves Dance Agency. A very wonderfully supported us with our um, our residency. So we're working up in the studio in School Hill. Um, at the moment there's a wee drill outside somebody's like drilling something I think they're like throwing up a building or something um, outside so aye they're properly going for it um, so you might hear that like noise in the background um, it's it's um, yeah I don't know if you can hear it or not but if you do that's what's going on it's wee sound effect if need be wee sound effect <laughs> So we are in the middle of um, an R&D, we're just finishing R&D on a project called No Offence um, and No Offence is all about kind of what it's like for a young person um, to come out and kind of, yeah, to come out in the 21st century um, and to, you know, be, to live their authentic life as a an LGBTQ person. And what is that, that like, like right now in the 21st century in post-Brexit Britain? Because yes, my friends, we it happened. Dun, dun, dun. Um, horrendous. Yes, we know. But sadly, that's where we're at. So we're really interested in kind of what that is going to be like then for young people um, to, to be themselves kind of going forward. So we're doing a piece of work about it that's going to sit alongside our other touring work. So we did, uh, we got funded by Creative Scotland um, for a research and development phase back in December 2018. So we worked with, we got another residency through the workroom in Glasgow, thank you very much, for where we spent two weeks in the studio researching ideas based on kind of what it's like to, yeah, kind of what, what basically kind of what it's been like for all of us as either LGBTQ people or allies and what that's been like for us kind of over the last kind of 20 odd years and then trying to kind of imagine what that's going to be like going forward for young people. So we'd spent two weeks working in Glasgow. We looked a lot at the, the G of the LGBT. And then we came back in April last year and we worked at the space at Dundee and Angus College where we spent another week we're looking at the L and the B of LGBT. And now we are here in Aberdeen. And for reference, in case you're listening to this sometime in the future, this is February 2020. We are now working on research um, around the, the T and indeed the, the, the Q and the plus of this kind of narrative. So, um, yeah, we thought it'd be really interesting then just to have a bit of a chat. Also, this ties in with another project we're doing, which is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund um, called Hear Me Out. And we're also working with um, the McManus in Dundee, the art gallery and museum in Dundee, and also with LGBT Youth Scotland on this project. And that's about trying to find out what is it like right now for young people. So it's a research project, essentially, trying to collect stories from young LGBT people um, of different ages. So we're hoping this also will be part of this podcast, will also then be part of that kind of wider um, exhibition that we're doing um, as part of that. 
So, Alex, I wonder then if we can maybe start off by kind of asking you, um, we'll just kind of interview each other. We'll keep it pure like dead cash. Um, so I was thinking we can maybe kind of start off by asking each other kind of, you know, when did you know? I, I certainly know looking back like at a school, I don't know if I necessarily identified as knowing that the word above above my head that was glaringly obvious to lots of other people but not necessarily myself was gay. And I, But I just kind of knew that I was different. So I guess my question to you is when did you know that you were different? Did you have a label for it? Do you have a label for it now? I think I can well, funnily enough, I was so different that I didn't even want to come out the womb different. That's what I was about to say. Oh, I came out the womb, you know, jumping and skipping and singing and dancing and, and be my rainbow fantasy, but I didn't even do that because I was a C-section and also two weeks late. But I just, now looking back, I wish I could shake myself going, the reason you're feeling this way is because you're so different. And I think anyone in the arts, even people that aren't necessarily LGBT plus identifying people, they know they're different and they know that their interests or their intellect or their, the way they dress or just there's something that isn't quite fitting in. So I think that when you've got access to the arts, that helps you feel a little bit more included. But then, as I'm sure you'll be the same in Dundee and kind of South Lanarkshire, West of Scotland, where it's not really seen as being a necessity compared to your English and your Master Science, which are all super important. But that arts education is really where people can find out about themselves, which I think is the most important part of education. And I think that that's where we're missing. So I think that I kind of grew up and what I really noticed would I, is I would project myself onto my friends and go, I'm just like that person. I'm just like my friend so-and-so, you know, and I started dressing like them and acting like them and talking like them. But then, as you do when you're young, you fall out and you can't stand each other two weeks later. So then I'd have another friend and go, well, actually, no, I'm just like them and I'm into that music and I'm into dressing like that and doing this. And I just kind of went through a cycle of that for a good 15, 16, 17 years because I think I was unwilling to actually look at myself and go, but what do you want to do, pal? What's, what's going on in that wee melon of yours and just kind of being open about that? So I always knew I was different. We have this, we have this quote in the Macrossan household, we're an unusual family. And we kind of say that and we quote that to one another all the time because I think in comparison to other kind of nuclear families of a father, a mother, a sister, in quotes, and a brother, we are very unusual and the gender normativeness was never a huge deal in our house. So I knew I was different because I was able to be different with my family. But then when I came into school and there was people from all these other families that were like, yeah, no, that's not, that's not what goes down in the Smith household. That's not what goes down in the Thompson household. That's when you go, oh, right, okay. So I actually need to just take out the Neapolitan and just be Manila for just now. Um, so yeah, I think it's just always been there. I just didn't have the language to say this is what I think I am mm. until relatively recently. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think that resonates with me actually as well. So I think I, so I grew up on um, a fairly rough council estate in Dundee um, and called Trotic or colloquially the Trotics, um, and which is on the edge of another kind of quite full-on housing, housing kind of scheme, uh, which which is called Curtin. Um, and yeah, that at that point, you know, it was like we had a lot of kind of families nearby us who were, you know, kind of um, kind of drug dealers, really. Um, yeah, lots. <laughs> um, and it, so it was a fairly, like, rough area um, to kind of grow up. But, you know, my mum and dad were always really good at kind of keeping me and my sister kind of away from that as much as they possibly could, given that it was literally on our doorsteps. Um, and, but, you know, I I think I, I stood out like a sore thumb, like, because I was, like, you know, different from all the other people. Um, well, I mean, I guess we all were, but um, I was particularly different from other people. Uh, I also remember, you know, reading all the kind of hetero uh, heteronormative kind of narratives, that's quite hard to say, um, where, you know, it was always about boy meets girl, fall in love, girl meets boy, fall in love. Um, whereas, actually, I was always a bit like, ooh, but I actually find it, fan I actually find it. <laughs> 
Well, that's the whole crux of the story is I don't. <laughs> um, I fancy, thank you, um, I fancy, uh, you know, we Kenneth over there, you know. So there was like a wee, uh, there was a, a boy in my year, um, same age as me, that we totally, I, I, I just was totally obsessed with them. Um, so, and it's really interesting kind of looking back at it now because I guess, you know, that's quite normal that young people kind of, you know, developing kind of feelings and kind of understanding kind of how that works and all of that. Um, but for me, it wasn't really about a girl. Like it did, it was a bit later on in school because I think I heard so much about, you know, boys are meant to like girls and vice versa um, that I then felt like, oh yeah, there was a girl that then became my wee like girlfriend um, who pretty much was just that. She was my like, in quotes, girlfriends, where we just hung out and we actually really enjoyed spending time with each other, but it wasn't, a, I think, about really a relationship in that kind of traditional romantic view. Um, so, yeah, I think that was kind of how I was different. So, I guess that kind of leads on to the next question, which is then, um, when did you, if indeed you, you felt you had to, um, come out? It's, it's always a kind of tricky question for me about coming out because... Certainly, and I'm so privileged, and I totally acknowledge that I'm privileged to have been in a household where you you didn't have to come out. It was just, you're my child, and I love you, and I support you. Um, the, the thing that I say constantly, and it is hilarious, I think, but it's also so true. My dad would say, I don't care who, who you become, I don't care who you bring home, as long as you're not a bleeping Tory, you can, <laughs> as long as you're not a Tory, I don't really care, I still love you. And, and it's <laughs> particularly, I think, in our area of, of Scotland, that was, uh, you know, something that was was actually quite unusual to have a kind of a, a nurse for a mother and a kind of a, a father that was in sort of oil and then construction and then you know so two very working class parents and working class jobs in a working class area saying I love you I don't care just just live your best life Henny and that was pretty much it from day one um, and I think it was similar for me any I always had a kind of fascination with you know my, my parents my dad would sit and watch you know Lily Savage and again what other kind of you know worky would sit and watch Lily Savage but he loved you know funny drag queens and and you know he loved Jimmy Somerville was one of his favorite um, music artists and it was always you know Erasure was another one that he absolutely loved Boy George all of these people were I was surrounded by that music growing up so I had such an affinity for those people that were kind of out with gender binaries and kind of throwing caution to the wind and dressing how they wanted and doing what they wanted. So that was my safe space, was at home to just do that. But then as I sort of grew up and it was again seeing all the films and, and the programmes about that boy meets girl, girl meets boy, whatever. And anytime you did see any sort of LGBT plus character, they were either dying or they were getting stabbed or they were getting, you know, so it was like, it, it doesn't really, I think it's important to show the, the struggles that the community goes through, but it's not all doom and gloom all the time. So it would have been really nice, even for people that are, even for young people out with the gender binary and out with that kind of sexuality struggle, just to see that there is positive role models there would have been lovely, lovely gal, but it just didn't turn out that way. And I remember having a conversation with my mum when I was going out with um, my first kind of proper relationship, which was actually with a, a male identifying person. And I just kind of, we were just chatting and I said, you know, I, I think that I am, I don't think I'm straight. And she said, well, do you still want to be with that person? I says, no, I really do. And she said, well, that's fine then. And I said, but I mean, and I was like 19 or something. So like old enough to kind of know that it's fine, but I still felt like, no, that's not fine. I do need to make a decision. And my mum was saying, well, you don't need to make a decision. Just you, you do whatever you feel is right. If you want to be with that person, be with that person. If you want to be with a female, be with a female. If you want to be with someone, just just do whatever you want. And um, just don't cheat on anyone. Just don't just don't be that kind of person. Don't be horrible. And then and then you're fine. So and I also have had various conversations about that. And then I remember my my brother kind of saying to me after that relationship had finished and I went out on a date with a girl, um, lovely Emma, who I'm still very, very close with. Well, I don't think she thought it was a date, but I thought it was a date. I was saying that. I was like, I'm taking this. Um, yeah. And uh, and then I remember my brother kind of saying to me, you know, you know, you can talk to me about these things. And I says, well, yeah, I just didn't really feel the, the need to. He said, okay, well, that's fine, but just as long as you know. So I think it was always that thing of it was never necessarily said, but I didn't really feel like I had to have a phone call or a conversation because... 
I just never felt that need but certainly as I've been it feels more like coming out to people that you are not close with that don't know you and almost having to come out every day after that if someone makes an an assumption an assumption Sean Connolly if someone makes an assumption about your sexuality or your gender and then having to say well actually that's not the case so it's it's actually more so now that I feel quite comfortable where I am that I have to come out almost every day after that and I think that that's just how we the risk we run in, in this kind of oh getting deep here but in the society you know you, you present female and people go do you have a boyfriend you know you present male people do you have a girlfriend and it's you know even just that you just sometimes have to go well actually not fully so yeah never really had a single coming out story I was just kind of different but I knew I was loved and I just went about my business and that was pretty much it. Yeah, that's really interesting because um, my coming out story was, well, I, yeah, I definitely had to come out. I mean, so I was, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, Alex, you know, only by a couple of months. Um, so I I grew up in the 80s um, when the old, you know, that, that kind of horrendous campaign was going on about AIDS awareness, where it was, you know, 1987, the the kind of monolith advert, um, the AIDS kind of tombstone was kind of out, and it was terrifying. So I remember being at school and getting on the school bus, I think we were going swimming or something, and I remember the sign being on the side of the bus with this massive tombstone um, saying, like, AIDS, don't die of ignorance. And I don't, I don't think I was properly aware of what AIDS was at that point, but it was just this massive, like, tombstone. And I think over the coming weeks, it was then on TV, it was on every news programme, um, and, you know, and we kept on hearing, like, and I remember how it starts, it was like, now there is a virus. And it was terrifying. It was like John Hart, um, you know, famous actor. And it was just like, it was like the start of like something like a horror movie or something. It was just really terrifying. And I remember just thinking, oh my goodness, what is that? And it kept on saying about gay men, gay men, gay men, gay men. Um, and it was known as kind of, you know, at the time, like a, a disease that gay men get and it was interesting and as I kind of discovered more I guess I kind of discovered what being gay was at that point because it was then you know hearing lots and lots of conversations about gay men are two men that sleep together and fall in love with each other although it was never really so much about love it was always about the more seedy side of things it was always about they have sex um so yeah it was kind of weird so I remember this going off on a bit of a tangent from a coming out story, but um, it kind of ties into what we're going to talk about in a minute. But I remember um, going to the doctors for like just a routine, some asthmatic, and I used to go to like doctors all the time with my with my mum for like checkups, and my asthma was quite bad as a kid. So I remember going for this checkup, and and they had to take blood for some reason, um, and I knew that they found out if you had HIV or AIDS via a blood test because that was very well documented in the press, um, and. Um, um, I remember going to get this blood test and I remember like us going to a cafe, my mum and my gran and going to a cafe and I went to the toilet and I was panicking about this whole thing about why they'd taken my blood. Now I was 11 years old at that point, well no I was 10 years old at that point and, um, and I remember going into the toilet and thinking, oh my god, my mum is going to find out that I am gay because they've taken my blood. Um, and I went, I remember going out and my mum was quite upset about something and she was chatting with my gran and she was looked like, she looked like she'd been crying. She was a bit upset about something with, with my gran. And my gran saw me come out of the toilet and my gran went, shh, 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 don't, shh, 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 she's coming back, he's coming back. So I came back and my mum put on her best face of pretending everything was okay. And I thought, I'm going to have to say to my mum, look, it's okay, I know that I've got AIDS. Um, because I just thought, if you're gay, you have AIDS, and I thought I've let my mum down because I, I I must have that. That's what the blood test was about, and she can't bring herself to tell me, you know. So when you think about just the damage of all of that lack of education around being gay and what that's like, and actually that's kind of you know how that manifested in me as a child. You know, I was in primary six at that point. You know, so ten years old, um, and I thought that 
my world was coming to an end and that I had this deadly disease that, you know, obviously I was 10 years old. So, you know, I didn't, um, I wasn't having sex at that point. Um, you know, cut to like six months later, but no, I'm joking. Uh, but no, uh, like, te- you know, 10 years old, so obviously wasn't, a, you know, active at all. Um, but yeah, horrendous. So f- I think because of a lot of that, a lot, there's a lot of like deep-seated guilt in the 80s and 90s if you're gay. Um, so I didn't actually come out to my family till I was 21. Um, so I went, I remember feeling different at the, end of, at the end of secondary school. I remember there was a performance on the Brits with Madonna. Um, oh, yes, Madonna, thank you. Um, and there was two dancers, one's called Luca Tomasini, Luca Tomasini, because uh, I was just in love with him. And he had this dyed blonde hair and this silver costume. And he was dancing with another male dancer who also had dyed blonde hair. And they looked like, they looked like kind of like hot twins. Um, you know, and they were like dancing with each other and caressing each other with Madonna um, and I just was suddenly like oh hello um, these are beautiful men and I think I might fancy them so it's very like interesting and I then went off and um, felt like I needed to go away to London I couldn't live in Dundee um, kind of who I as, as who I was so I felt like I could only really come out when I went away from Dundee so I came out at the age of 21 I went to I think the very first person I told was um, uh, a woman called Wendy hi Wendy if you're listening um, and Wendy runs wild uh, wired aerial theater in, in Liverpool um, and I remember we, we lived it together in the house um, and I remember telling her that I was different and that actually I was, I, I think I, you know, I, I think I'm attracted to men. Um, and I think everyone around me was probably like, hallelujah, finally. Uh, you know, and my friend Julie always, hi Julie, uh, my friend Julie always laughs about how, you know, all the way through growing up, people used to always say to her, you know, as my best friend, um, they always used to say to her, but, you know, did you not know that Tommy was gay? And she always kind of answers going, well, no, because, you know, he, he said he wasn't. And, you know, it was not none of my business to, you know, to think otherwise. So um, ask my sister, though, she's got a different story because I used to basically I was obsessed with Wham and George Michael so I used to have a pillow of George Michael that I used to who wasn't George Michael is everyone's sexuality it's nothing to do with male female like he is just goddess but anyway total total god (laughs) Uh, but yeah bless Um, I used to fall asleep on a George Michael pillow Um, I had like a George Michael t-shirt yep yep I had like armbands hats and everything Um, so yeah very much obsessed with George Um, but yeah it wasn't until really I was 21 and we used to go to this club called uh, GUI um, that was at the time still going but at the time was in this building called Astoria in London and they used to have these most amazing nights where people like Madonna and kind of Britney and like loads of amazing people Christina uh, all these like 90s like pop god goddesses um, would basically come along and do these amazing performances so I remember speaking to my sister on the phone and it totally came out of the blue it was a bit of an accident my sister phoned me and she was like hey how are you and I was like I'm fine just went out last night recovered from a hangover went out last night to gay and she was like oh is that a gay bar and i was like first of all i was like well done you could spell um but i was also kind of like oh tommy you idiot like you've just kind of dropped a massive like bombshell there so i then said oh yeah no it's just you know all my friends are gay i'm at a dance school obviously you know everyone every, all the men are gay um and she went oh brown okay cool so are you gay and it was literally matter of fact like rolled off her tongue and i was like <laughs> and she said, you know, it's fine if you are. Um, and I was like, yes. And she was like, so you're gay? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and I think that was pretty much the extent of the conversation. She was like, cool. And I remember, saying, I remember her saying to me, okay, don't tell mum and dad. Whatever happens, don't tell mum and dad. And I was like, okay, cool. That's how I feel as well. I don't think they cope with that. So I was like, and she was like, cool, but you know, that's fine. Enjoy yourself. Just be safe. And I was like, cool. About an hour later, she phoned me back going, no, 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 you have to tell mum and dad. I've thought about it and you have to tell mum and dad because actually that's not fair to keep that from them. You know, they they, 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 won't, they won't bother. And I think I was maybe being a bit, you know, not really thinking it through and they'll be totally fine with it. So in the end, um, I ended up telling my mum and dad um, and I remember telling my mum and dad that I was bisexual because I felt like in some way 
that was just kind of, I'm telling them, I'm just halfway there between what you think I am and what I actually am. So somehow that made me feel like it was all right to come out in that way. So I actually came out to one with that as as bi, um, even though I knew that I was absolutely just into men. Um, And yeah, and thankfully, both mum and my dad were really brilliant about it um, and were, yeah, great. And it took a bit of adjustment, you know, because I think think for them it was, you know, it wasn't so much a shock. I think they probably knew, um, but I think they were still... had a bit of a period of adjustment um you know it was the 90s um and you know and then they were fine and they yeah thankfully they've been great like my whole life actually well you know it's funny that you're saying about like seeing madonna with like the two the two men and that's when you thought oh hiya that appeals for me because madonna must have had her hand in many (laughs) <laughs> and in many pies, but I didn't mean it like that. I mean, in many people's coming out stories because yeah. I remember seeing Madonna and Britney having that like having that kiss, and I remember yes. seeing that and going, "All right, I'm all right with that." Yep. Yeah. And then it was it was funny because it was all that kind of you know the kind of dad sort of reaction. Of, oh, I, you know, I don't mind seeing a bit of that. Oh, I can because that was almost how I like felt. Yeah. And my brother would have as many adolescent boys did um, who were straight had all the kind of like the the kind of page three sort of calendars and stuff and I would just go and sit in Scotty's room and just think (laughs) but it was weird though because I didn't know if it was I'm attracted to that or I don't look like that and I'm ashamed Mm. that I don't look like that Mm. and I'll never look like that Mm. so I think sometimes when you're um, sort of assigned female at birth when you're female bodied and you also have an attraction towards the female form in any way it's when I was growing up I found it quite tricky to know well is it because Madonna and Britney are a bit of all right they're a nice bit of crumpet Mm. and that's why I like seeing that Mm. or is there actually some kind of shame of like it's like a car crash you can't look away from because I will never look like Madonna or like Britney um and then now as I'm older I'm like well it's fine because I I, it was because I was attracted to it but it's also because I not like that as well because I'm also attracted to other genders as well it's not just the, the kind of female thing but I think that was interesting about Madonna because mm. I think that was such an icon for so many people that were LGBT plus or just different mm. in any way um, and then sort of the subsequent like kind of Lady Gaga's sort of following on from Madonna's legacy I, I feel and I, they're two massive inspirations to me mm. even though they're both straight women yeah. you know so I think that's that's kind of something that's quite interesting for people that have that sort of Everyone looks at Madonna and goes, that's a defining moment yeah, <laughs> in my sexuality yeah, yeah. or my gender. Yeah. Well, I think there's like loads of mo- moments with Madonna with that, eh? Because even like, I remember like 1991, probably before your time, Alex, uh, but 1990, were you born in 1991? I was born in 1995. Oh, burn! <laughs> um, but I think it was like 1990, 1991-ish, kind of, it was quite a long tour, the Blonde Ambition tour, mm. like the famous oh, tour yes. with, you know, there was the bed with things happening on the bed um, and all of that. But, you know, that was a, I, th- I think for many of my male friends was a bit of a sexual awakening, um, including myself. Um, I didn't get to see it live, but I remember remember my mum saying, oh, Tommy, you like Madonna, don't you? Oh, she's on Radio 1 tonight, let's just pop it on. And I remember her going on, uh, being on Radio 1 and... Was it, was it that one? I might be getting my Madonna stories mixed up, but I'm sure it was that one where she got told beforehand, whatever you do, you're not allowed to use the F word. Um, and she basically went into something like a two or three minute speech where all she said was, I'm effing this and I'm F by about this and F, 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 F. And literally used the F word something like 56 times or something in three minutes because she got told she wasn't allowed to do it on live air. So I think there was something about like that rebel and, you know, she was like, I think from my era, like she was the rebel um, and you know and seeing this woman you know I was surrounded by loads of strong women in my life like my mum my gran my sister all my aunties my cousins you know everyone was like really really strong women in my life and then to see this other strong woman that I kind of absolutely adored like a god um, like on, on TV and film and all of that you know just absolutely being an absolute boss um, just there was something about that about that fearlessness of and I think she kind of then became the voice of an LGBT kind of generation because she was fearless in kind of encouraging people to be authentically them and to live as kind of truthfully as they can be um, and not have any kind of like bullshit 
So I don't know why I said effed all the time and then actually I've just said bullshit. So that's interesting. Cool. Sars. Okay, so talking about Madonna then, 1998, if we reverse a couple of years in time, if we go in our DeLorean, thank you, see what I did there, Back to the Future, thank you. Um, so if we go back in time a bit uh, to 1988, um, Margaret Thatcher was in power with um, the, the, the Tory, her Tory government, and she had um, been hearing all about these books that were going around, that they were basically saying that Labour had put all these books um, into uh, certain like local libraries and stuff, that it was about um, encouraging people to accept and un understand same-sex um, partnerships and families. So obviously she was outraged um, and she then, and her government then enacted an act called, the sec called Section 28 um, in 1988. And then that law was in place in Scotland until 2000 and in the rest of the UK until 2003. Um, and she made this comment that was children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an, an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated out of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. Her words, not mine. Um, so really interesting when you think about this was off of the back of um, the, the AIDS crisis. And as I was saying earlier, that was like 1987 that um, the, the government kind of sanctioned um, monolith advert, as it's known, uh, that was the kind of the, the AIDS tombstone. Um, and then a year later, um, you know, that community again was being kind of, um, you know, targeted. Um, and yeah, so I grew up in that periods and you know I was I was in school so I was in I was in primary six still um when that act was um enacted and then actually that was in place through the rest of my formal education right through to I graduated in 2000 um from university so that was right through um all my schooling um and it's really interesting because I could see that the effect that you know gay LGBTQ people particularly the gay men were being victimised at that point, and we were being the target of, you know, we were we were being viewed pretty much as the the scourge of society. That you know we brought this disease here, and it's our fault that it's that so many people are dying of it. You know, and never mind the fact that you know so many people in the LGBT community were were dying of this disease, and um, there was no cure. Um, they didn't know how to treat it. Um, so yeah, really a really horrendous time um and Alex, i know from conversations you've had before about you've talked about your mum was a was a nurse working in those wards at the time yeah um my mum was a ward sister um i think she was she said at one point she was one of one of the youngest ward sisters in the uk um she was really strong again another really strong woman as you were saying you you were brought up around really strong women and that was the epitome of strength for me because she was so willing to look after everyone else and and you know even sort of subsequent outbreaks of viruses like I remember during like the the Ebola virus when, when that had happened and um, sort of swine flu the current uh, kind of coronavirus and my mum's main mantra is a duty of care around patients and if you're a nurse or working in the medical field, your number one priority is care for those patients. And I remember her saying that she felt even if that meant her safety was on the line, she would put that on the line for a patient. So she has never really went into a huge amount of detail. And I think it would be really interesting to try and get a little bit of a podcast interview with, with her because not only was she working in the wards, but because at that particular time, a lot of male nurses, um, just because of, I don't know, demographic or whatever, but a lot of the male nurses that she worked with were gay men, but not a lot of them were out. And there was one particular person that she was really, really close with that um, she knew that they were gay and they just did not talk about it. They couldn't talk about it. And the, the sense of shame around that was just so obvious to her. And it's it's so easy sometimes I think particularly now for people to say oh well you know just come like just come out it's not a big deal it's all it's all fine now it's all it's all accepted but 
when you look not that far back in the future and there were so many people when you, you almost saw your future on a hospital bed, you know, that's that's very hard to uncondition yourself, I suppose, or recondition yourself to think differently. And I just I just know that I can't imagine how it must have felt for someone like my mum being a, a, such a wonderful person and a wonderful nurse to really know what needs to be done but not really able to do it because there were the fear in the wards uh, according to her was so real and a lot of nurses like they're still going in and doing the job but obviously worried and scared because there was just no there was no education about you know it really was and even still I remember when I was at college there's still kind of posters up about HIV and AIDS saying you cannot get HIV from you know coughing you cannot get HIV from shaking someone's hand and it's just and you think that was only a few years ago and we still there's still some people that do think that they need to have a hazmat suit on whenever they go near someone that may or may not have the HIV virus and and the difference between HIV and AIDS as well like you know she she did say that at that time it was a blanket statement it was a quilted a heavy quilt duvet statement that HIV and AIDS are the same thing they're not the same thing but people would say oh you know that the AIDS patients are people with AIDS and it wasn't it was people that may or may not have had the HIV virus and the speculation around that as well just as you were saying was even if there was a uh, 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 this isn't from my mum, this is from other kind of research that I've done about other nurses that I've said working at that time um, about people saying that if, if someone came in who had said that they were gay, they nurses would automatically assume oh, they, they have the virus. Um, that was from a, a series of blog posts that I read when we did our last kind of residency um, and it's, it's just, it seems so daft now to think that that's the case but you see it with any sort of epidemic that's just the panic that just starts to rise and people, they, they don't think about the human being that's that's may or may not be suffering. They think about, well, how's it going to affect me though? When in reality, your risk is so low and it's, yeah, it's, it's really what I can't imagine what it must have actually been like to not only have been in my mum's position, being a straight woman who was trying to help people and trying to get them better, but I couldn't imagine being a, a gay person working inwards and s trying to look after people that were suffering from something that you are so worried about yourself. I can't imagine it. So yeah, just I, I guess in case you don't actually know what Section 28 is, so that it was a law that banned the promotion of homosexuality in schools in Britain. Um, so basically put a blanket ban on, so if anybody had a question around how they were feeling, um, about if they wanted to come out and get advice, um, they couldn't do that. The teachers were legally banned from having any conversations about them being gay. So it's a really interesting kind of thinking about my school, what that was like going to school in Dundee, um, and knowing that I was, you know, that I that I was gay and that I was attracted to boys um, and kind of what that was like, kind of, you know, looking to kind of seek any kind of comfort from anyone. I think there was a good few other boys actually in my years that have kind of since come out and looking back at the kind of time probably recognised that they were kind of like me and liked boys. Um, but, you know, it's interesting when you look back at the kind of the sex education that we had at school, I mean, it was obviously horrific anyway, as quite often sex education is. Um, hopefully it's better nowadays. Um, but certainly at that, that point, it was fairly, you know, horrendous. Um, and, you know, boys and boys and girls, and I'm using that term because actually we were talking about primary school and they were actually boys and girls, um, were separated by gender in, like, I think, was it P5, I think? So when we were probably, like, what's that? P5 is, like, 9 and 10 years old. And, you know, boys were taking into a room, a room to talk about erections and girls were taking into a room to talk about periods. Um, and it's really interesting because the, it then created this kind of mystique about boys weren't allowed to know anything about periods and girls weren't allowed to know anything about erections and how and how each other's bodies worked as opposite um, kind of physical functions of our, of our bodies. Um, so I think that kind of creates, first of all, that creates kind of like problem number one when you're talking about sex and gender. Um, and then, you know, problem two comes along a bit later on when actual sex education is introduced. I remember our sex education 
sex education was pretty much bumbled through and it then resulted in showing this fairly horrific video of a woman giving birth um, that was fairly graphic. Um, there was like tears and everything going on, you know, and I think the, the, the point of that was to shock people into just not having sex. I think that was the, you know, and I was at a, a non-denominational school, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't about religion or anything was the, was the kind of thing here, but it was pretty much just about let's just shock everyone into not having sex. Um, you know, and I remember someone asking one day, shouting out, "Oh, what what happens if you're if you're gay?" Um, that was a Dundonian accent, in case you didn't know. Um, but you know, some I remember a boy shouting that out, and the and the teacher just shutting it down. But it was like they were saying some, you know, it was like he just basically swore in the classroom or something. You know, it was like the teacher was angry about you mentioning gay um, as part of that whole conversation. So, and I didn't understand at that point about Section 28, I didn't understand that actually it was banned and that actually probably they would get some pretty severe, kind of uh, severely reprimanded if they had talked about it. Um, but it's quite funny to kind of think about that, you know, my growing up was I was thinking, I remember my teacher losing it when someone asked about what about gay people. Um, and, ever, and I also remember the other thing, you know, as you do when you kind of remember all those kind of key milestones in your life about your emotional kind of upbeing and, uh, um, um, upbringing and kind of well-being, um, is I remember like all the kids laughing about it as if being gay was funny and hilarious and that it was the butt of a joke. Um, so, yeah, a really interesting kind of time to live through. Um, and then now, as, I, as I've got older and I meet kind of people of a similar age to me, um, particularly gay men, because it was, a, it was an act about gay men, um, and it all stemmed from a book, I forgot to say what the book was called. The book was called, it's a brilliant title, Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin. Um, and that book was uh, a, a book that was kind of picked up by the Daily Mail, obviously, um, and they were basically outraged and um, that, this, that this book was going about and it kind of came to the attention of Margaret Thatcher and then, yeah, this whole campaign kind of came out of that. Um, but, you know, you kind of look back and think um, all, all that generation of, of, of kind of men, of kind of my age and kind of around about that age, pretty much probably up until about 2000, you know, there's a lot of kind of recorded mental health kind of issues, um, poor mental health uh, for a lot of men around that time because actually we were having to discover in a fairly reckless way uh, what it was like to be a gay man, you know. So, so I mean, there's a lot of stories among my gay male friends where people were saying that, you know, they had sex at a really young age because actually they just didn't know kind of you know what to do didn't know it was appropriate you know there was no kind of there wasn't even talk about age of consent about what was the you know the legal age that you can have sex because it was all kind of seen through a heteronormative lens about presuming that we are talking about a male and a female getting together and that that would be a kind of a heterosexual relationship and the age of consent would be 16 or i think it was 18 no it was 16 um so yeah, it was kind of, it wasn't really bandied around um, for a long time. I didn't even understand until much later on that actually age of consent wasn't even equal at that point. And there was a huge amount of work had to be done by governments to then change that, change that law. I think it's, it's, it's interesting for me because I was in nursery going into primary one in 2000. Sorry, Tommy. Oh, <laughs> like a goodness. dagger to your heart. Um, when when Section 28 was abolished in Scotland, which was 2000. And in the rest of the UK, it was 2003, and I was in primary three, but again, not it's kind of over your head at that point. But even though it was technically, in the eyes of the law, totally fine to go to teachers and, and ask questions and, and bring it up, it was interesting that even though it was no longer a problem, it was no longer against the law, no one brought it up still. So I sometimes wonder whether or not it was the fact that it was banned that meant that people were acting in that kind of angry way of don't, don't say that, don't ask about being gay or, or about sexuality. But actually, it's just maybe the teacher's uncomfortability. And I totally understand because, you know, we go into 116 primary schools every single year with, with Well Good, the NHS project alone, and you meet so many teachers and you just, you do have a real respect for your dealing, there's one teacher dealing with 20, 20, 30, maybe even more children and all of their family units have got different opinions on how they want their children to be raised and whether or not they want to talk about gender or sexuality. So I totally appreciate that, that primary teachers and secondary teachers 
teachers of any kind have got a lot they've got a lot of kind of juggling to do with making sure they're doing it right but then it's also that thing about doing it right for every child so does that mean then if if there's a child that's left behind because they've got a question about sexuality or about gender and you don't bring that up well then you're not doing it right for every child then you are letting children fall through the cracks and you are letting the mental health of lgbtq plus young people just totally deteriorate because they're going to get in the playground no matter what and that's something we were chatting about this week is about a lot of this hate and ignorance a lot of the time is is habitual and it is where you're from and particularly in Scotland where yes we have cities but they're nowhere near as big as places like London or you know New York or any of these big shiny places and not saying that hate crimes and and, and other harassment and bullying doesn't happen there because it totally does but when you compare even just things like you know the drag scene in Glasgow to the drag scene in London you know it's so much smaller because we're smaller we're a smaller nation and it's harder then to identify with people and harder to find role models that you think you can identify with so that means that then one I mean once I was at school we had again zero I can't remember of one single lesson that we had that was to do with sex education other than one period in in science which was the physical mechanics of what you know a penis and vagina is and what they do that was it and that is less than 10 percent of actually what is consent what is a healthy relationship what does that look like what does an unhealthy relationship look like all of these things that is actually if even if you take you know the sex part out of it there's so much that isn't being talked about and that's just for the the kind of heteronormative young people let alone the people that don't identify with anything like that you are totally leaving behind a massive amount of of information that young people need to know i'm super lucky i had it from my parents in my family unit and i'll say again how privileged i am to have that if you are unlucky and you can't come out to your parents you can't talk about these things what do you do other than then turn to the internet which isn't always the most friendly place mm. to try and find out these things and try and do yourself research you shouldn't have to do it when mm. you're 14 15 years old there should be someone there to help guide you through it so i don't know if it's necessarily just the fact that section 28 banned this i think that even though i was i spent most of my school and most of my education with section 28 not in place I didn't notice any difference to what you were saying mm. yeah and that was you know 10 20 years before mm. or less Tommy because I know you're only 25 but you know what I mean <laughs> 25 in two months um you know it's interesting talking about Google and the internet because actually other search engines are available um but it's it's interesting because you know Google and the internet wasn't there when I was growing up so there was there wasn't even anybody to ask at that point like I I remember this is slightly embarrassing now but I remember there was like there's all these like phone lines when I was growing up that was the kind of like thing you could do um and I remember <laughs> I'm not sure I want to admit this on um, in a podcast but I remember um thinking that um if I masturbated that I would um I would get it I remember genuinely thinking that because I thought I'm gay and I might infect myself because the you know sperm might be the thing um so but it's because of that just pure lack of knowledge and I remember calling a line and asking can you get AIDS from your own sperm and the woman on the edge of the phone I mean god bless her <laughs> she must to be just like Oh, darling, you know, like, but, um, you know, just it just goes to show there was, you know, the lack of information that was around, you know, nobody knew what was going on. And, you know, the government, um, you know, pretty much what was out there was if you're if you are straight, then it's like, you know, choirs of angels are singing, bunny rabbits are jumping across the fields all happy. And it's, you know, the joys of spring. But if you're gay, you will die and you are the scourge of society. And, you know, you are not even worth us passing a law to talk about your existence, you know. So it was pretty horrendous. And you can imagine then the impact of that on people's mental health and about how, you know, we're at a society at the moment, at this particular moment in time, where we've got a whole generation of people who were really adversely affected by that passing of the law. Um, you know, um, all because a, a few people in fairly privileged position just didn't agree and didn't think it was the right thing. And they're not thinking about the greater good and about looking after people as a wider society. Really interesting. Um, so... 
going back to then Margaret Thatcher's question about would we have been cheated or we are being cheated, as she said, um, do you think we were cheated then, Alex? I think we're still being cheated, not of what she was thinking. Again, it's also that that, that term, you know, the traditional moral values. As if, Good impression, Meryl Streep, thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you very much, yes. Um, it, it's, it's just... It's just awful ridiculousness. It's actually, it is like something out of a Peter Kay sketch. You know, that thing of... It's also that, you know, the same thing about kind of ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so what is it to be a lady? Do you have to be a certain type of lady? Or if you're still a woman, but you just, you know, you wear tracky bottoms, what does that, what does that mean for you then? And it's that, the traditional moral values. Well, I know plenty of heterosexual couples that, you know, had relations out with marriage that are living together in sin and all this stuff. But because it's heterosexual, then it's fine. You know, we don't need to talk about it. So it's also that, that terminology of... And also this thing of this inalienable right to be gay. It's like we have a, anyone has a right to want to be who they are. And it's that thing that you're saying about opinions. If you, if you have an opinion that gay people don't deserve to live, if you have an opinion that gender norms, if you have an, an opinion that your gender is the gender you're born with and that's it, well, okay, that's your opinion. But your freedom of speech shouldn't come above our freedom to be alive and that is the point and I feel like we're still picking up the pieces now after the awfulness that was section 28 and had that not been in place would things have been better now well I, I don't know that's something for a parallel universe to decide but I certainly think that we would have been able to ask questions whether or not teachers at the time or now would be comfortable to answer the questions they might have at least gone well I, I can't say to that but here's a number you can call here's a helpline here's here's something or here's a teacher that is comfortable talking and I think that it's actually funny that it's, it's it is almost laughable that that speech that kind of famous speech that she gave about we're being cheated of these of of, of being taught of these morals and these values but actually, no, we're being cheated because we're not being taught about who we are. We know that we're all different. We know that we've got different friends. We can identify that, but we don't have the language around it. So maybe if we had that language at a younger age, people's mental health may have been better. People's physical health may have been better. They might have been able to look after themselves properly. And there might be some lives that wouldn't have been lost. We might have still had some of the wonderful, amazing human beings that lost their lives during the HIV and AIDS crisis. And unfortunately, are still losing their lives today from suicide from poor mental health because they're just at all angles being told you're wrong you're disgusting you're the scourge of society and you're not it's just a few idiots in privileged positions that refuse to listen and it's a shame well i am pure choking back a few tea there alex that was absolutely <laughs> gorgeous um it's interesting as well because i i think are we being cheated i mean i think i was cheated on how to be healthy so how do you actually not get this virus um i think i was cheated from that um and i think that's something that i think look back at now and find just think it's unforgivable that there was a whole part of my kind of well-being that wasn't being catered for by the government um you know so i kind of look back at that time and just think now oh you know that's one of the reasons why i have a lot of um you know, resentment of, of kind of Tory principles because you just think, how can a government actually just ignore a whole generation, a whole um, sec section of society um, because it just doesn't sit with your moral values? And I think when you're in a position like that, your moral values should be at the side. It's about the greater good and about the, you know, um, I nearly said bigger society, but I think what, was that not one of their was that not one of their campaigns? So I'm not going to say that. Yeah, going to be going to move away from that. Um, but you know, it is that thing about the society as a, as a, as a general and actually making sure we're looking after everyone at every part of in every corner of um, kind of society. Um, but you know, I think the offshoot because obviously when terrible times happen, um, then obviously lots of underground goodness comes and um, the gay scene, um, the gay bars, LGBT bars. Um, that I would then go into, you know, there was huge campaigns about trying to educate young gay men about the use of condoms and safe sex. Um, and, you know, I think that was something that was like, I feel like in the 90s then when I was kind of, you know, out and proud, um, late, late 90s when I went to university um, and beyond, I, I met a whole load of people really who 
taught me how to be gay, you know, and how to live as a gay man and look after myself and protect myself and, you know, all that well-being training I should have had at school, um, I got via my, my circle of friends, really, um, who'd all kind of lived through it and kind of by experience, quite often by bad experience, then kind of learn the kind of what you needed to do and then kind of shared that information. So I think as a result of that, I've always felt like the LGBT community um, are very, are very well um, informed about not through traditional measures, but through through friends and kind of associates and networks um, about kind of how to look after yourself um, sexually. Um, you know, you go into gay bars and there was condoms and lube kind of everywhere. Um, and it was there was no shame about kind of going over and picking them up. There was almost a bit of a, way, you know, um, if you're picking them up, there was a bit of a celebration of that rather than actually feeling like you're, you're being vilified, um, like you're feeling kind of on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, and even kind of a, a, as kind of times have moved on now and where, you know, we're now at a point in time where people who um, are HIV positive uh, can live, um, uh, can be undetectable and therefore not be able to pass the virus on. So I think, you know, we're now at a point in time where actually everything has moved on massively. And I think if you're part of the LGBT community, I think then our information is pretty high we know a lot of stuff um but i'm not sure if wider society quite often i talk to my straight friends um, and quite often a lot of my straight friends don't know that information about prep being available um and about you know undetectable means untransmittable um you know so there's a lot of kind of uh we so i kind of feel a bit like we've kind of went the opposite way we've went from being this community that feels like we've got a lack of knowledge to suddenly be in a community that feels like we've got we're in possession of a huge amount of knowledge because we've had to go out there and seek it and find it out for ourselves um, and I think there was also a thing as well that I really remember was it I can't remember if it was Stonewall or Terence Trust but it was one of them maybe even both of them working together um, kind of went about kind of talking in really plain language about sex you know so it was using quite provocative language about you know if you fuck other men, you know, it would kind of say things like that rather than, you know, if you're having sex, you know, so it wouldn't be that kind of language. It would be very kind of, you know, kind of talking to people to kind of where they're at rather than kind of talking down to them um, about, you know, this is what you need to do. You need to put a rubber on. It wasn't even called a condom, you know. So I think they, they, they went a huge amount of ways of just trying to bring people in and not feel like talking about sex education was a was a weird thing, um, but actually it was just really normal. And it was like you and your pals down the pub. And I think that came out of a community of people people having to do that. Like you were literally, I remember literally sitting in one of the first gay bars I went to in, in London with two boys that I went to London Contemporary Dance School with um, and them teaching me about safe sex um, and telling me in great detail and they were loving it um, over some vodka martinis and jello shots um, about, you know, how to have sex, you know. Um, and it's really interesting, you know, and I think maybe that's how, you know, we, we you know, we had to do it because there just wasn't any other solution. Um, okay, so wrapping up then, Alex, um, I wonder what's your kind of hopes for, what's your hopes for the future? If we were to like have this kind of conversation again in like 10 years time, what do you hope will have happened? with sex education and thinking around um, sexuality and gender in society as a whole. Everyone just needs to chill out. Just relax. Like, it's, it's, it is that thing of, even in, in kind of heteronormative spaces, it's like, you're, it's always about losing and gaining. You're losing virginity, you're gaining experience in this and that. And it's like, we're just we're a human race and you'll move on and you'll go through your life as you go through and it's just there's this whole massive and I'm sure you everyone's the same at school particularly it's everything's all focused around what you are and who you like and who likes you and and sex and this and And it's just like chill out man it's all fine and if you if you decide that you want to be with more than one gender you decide you are more than one gender I just my ultimate hope for the future is that everyone is supported but so supported that it's not weird anymore and no one bats an eyelid if a male appearing person wears makeup or if a female appearing person has got short hair like just everyone just needs to relax and also try and stop making assumptions as well about about people you know if, if you see a super feminine female appearing person that doesn't mean that they are straight 
and same thing if you see a guy that we think oh you know he's a bit camp well that doesn't mean he's gay and you know or maybe it does or just you know just kind of try and stop making assumptions about people when you don't have to because a lot of people I think will make assumptions and, and look at people and be past remarkable about people that are just you know getting a cup of coffee and you don't even speak to them you just see them passing and people feel like they need to start dissecting what my chromosomes are and what you how you were born and what's going on between your legs like you don't need to do that unless it affects you directly just chill out and 900 times out of 901 times it's not going to affect you unless you're directly in a relationship with someone it does not affect you what is going on in their head in their pants or anywhere else so just keep it to yourself and if you've got an opinion then that's your opinion and freedom of speech you're right to have that opinion but again your right to an opinion does not come over our right to exist and be safe and be healthy so just shush <laughs> well I think maybe we should have this conversation again in 10 years' time, Alex, and let's see where we're at, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Alex, for um, sharing your thoughts um, around these issues uh, today. And, um, yeah, and I hope everyone um, can kind of join in the conversation. We're, we have a call-out at the moment, um, as I say, February 2020, um, if you're listening to this um, now. Um, we have a call-out on our website, um, on shapercaper.com, uh, for people to share stories about kind of where you're at, kind of what's happened kind of in your life, uh, maybe a coming-out story, maybe it's a story about not coming coming out and kind of um, kind of uh, your stories about connections with other people, how that's made you feel. Uh, it would be really great to hear from you, uh, whether you are identify as LGBTQ or whether you're an ally. Uh, we'd love to hear the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful um, from you. So have a look on our website, shapercaper.com, um, and we'd love to hear from you. So thanks very much, everyone, and I um, hope, hope you listen to us again soon. Bye-bye. Sure. <laughs>